Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Ginny and Harry C. Piper had lived a charmed life. They were wealthy, old money, none of that ostentatious nouveau riche business. They lived in a beautiful home in a Minneapolis suburb. Harry, called Bobby by his friends, was a prominent investment banker. Ginny was whip smart with steady nerves, serving as Bobby's sounding board on money matters. Plus, she was an avid volunteer in her community. These were quiet people who lived in a posh, secluded area and tried to do some good in the world because they knew how lucky they had it. So when two men, each armed with a pair of guns, walked into the Piper's house July 27, 1972, it was huge news. The sprawling estate of Harry and Virginia Piper in Orono was an unlikely scene for one of Minnesota's most notorious crimes. They entered her home about noon Thursday. The kidnapping of a millionaire's wife from her garden. Tied up two house servants, handcuffed Mrs. Piper, and left in two vehicles. The men pulled off one of the most brazen kidnappings in American history, with the largest ransom demand ever made at the time. The case that unfolded not only captivated the Minneapolis area, It riveted the world. The beautiful 49-year-old wife of the chairman of Piper Jaffray and Hopwood Brokerage in Minneapolis, snatched from her home with no warning. The case is detailed exhaustively in the 2014 book Stolen from the Garden, written by William Swanson. This case was planned and orchestrated by some very, very intelligent people. These were not run-of-the-mill Stumble bums. That was Swanson talking. His book was the first detailed account of the crime compiled after the FBI finally released the case files in the early 2000s. When Swanson's book came out, he gave interviews and library talks, so you'll hear his voice in a few different settings here. It has been called the most successful kidnapping in American history, and it's pretty hard to argue against that. Not only that... But this case is also one of the most daring in the country's history. Ginny Piper was enjoying a lazy afternoon on that warm July day in 1972. It was just after lunch, and she was outside of her house tending to her garden. She planned to go to a local hospital to volunteer later in the day, But for now, she was snipping dead leaves off of the plants she loved to grow in between her backyard and a lake she shared with her neighbors, one that was separate from, but close to, the bigger and better-known Lake Minnetonka. She loved her garden, beautiful garden that went down to a little private lake called Lake Lydiard. And she was back there about 1 o'clock, and she was playing around in her garden, 
She had had her hair done and her nails done as she had uh, once a week. This was a Thursday afternoon. That it was a Thursday is significant because that's the day the Pipers had two women arrive weekly to come and clean the house. Suddenly, Ginny noticed one of the cleaning women burst through the back door and run toward her. The woman's name was Bernice, and she said, Oh, those men. Ginny's thinking, what men? She goes in the house, and the first thing she sees is a man with a black hood and a black jacket of sorts and two guns, a gun in each hand. And then she sees another man dressed exactly the same, two sinister twins. She couldn't see what the men looked like because they were both wearing these strange matching homemade hoods that distorted their faces. And they used nylon stockings, but not in the simple pantyhose over the face kind of way you might imagine. And these had been carefully crafted and modified to button up under the men's necks. And the sight of this would have sent most people screaming. And it did in Bernice's case. But Ginny stayed amazingly calm. One of the gunmen said, where's your safe? Ginny replies, well, we don't have a safe, but I have a few pieces of jewelry upstairs you're welcome to take. Well, we're not interested in that. Where's your old man? They ask her. He's at work, she said, kind of confused. I mean, it was 1 p.m. on a Thursday. Where else would he be? The men seemed disappointed, even annoyed, and mumbled something about how Chico had gotten things wrong. And Ginny didn't know a Chico and had no idea what they were talking about. They didn't give her much time to wonder either. They said, You're coming with us. So they handcuffed her. They tied up the two women, the two cleaning ladies. And uh, one of the thugs brought a pillowcase downstairs. He'd gone upstairs apparently to look around, put a pillowcase over her head and shoved her out the door. As the trio left the Piper's home, one of the men set a letter addressed to the rest of the family on a table by the front door. Outside, they forced Ginny to climb into the back seat of a green two-door Monte Carlo. This is noteworthy only because if you know two-door cars, you know it's hard to get in the back seat. You've got to push the front seat forward and sort of twist your way in. Ginny, still completely calm, managed to make a joke. It's a good thing I'm thin, she said, with handcuffs on her wrists and a pillowcase over her head. Inside the house, the cleaning women were terrified. They'd been instructed not to scream for help and not to call the police, so they didn't. But they did manage to get themselves free, and after checking to make sure the hooded men really were gone, they hopped into a car and drove to Ginny's sister's house because they cleaned there too, and it was the first place they thought to go. Her sister was named Charlotte Morrison, though everyone called her shy. Shy called Bobby's work, a place called Piper, Jaffrey, and Hopwood, and like Ginny had said, Bobby was there. He was eating lunch at his desk. And Shai said, Ginny's been kidnapped. Bobby couldn't wrap his head around this at first. I mean, why would anyone take Ginny? She had no enemies. She was this beautiful, fit, 49-year-old woman with striking silver-white hair who always appeared poised and polite. And while the Pipers lived in a rich neighborhood, they were nowhere near the richest family around. Their neighbors were Pillsbury's and Dayton's. Far richer families living in bigger, easier-to-find mansions. Though Bobby was completely freaked out, he, like Ginny, stayed far calmer than most people would in this situation. 
He and his wife had been married for nearly 30 years. Their anniversary actually was coming up in just two weeks, and they'd raised three children together, all of them boys. And they'd had ups and downs like most couples. And Ginny had sometimes felt lonely because Bobby worked so much, but they loved each other. And Bobby wasn't sure what the hell had happened at his home, but he assumed that if Ginny had been kidnapped, there would be a ransom demand. And he decided straight away he was damn sure going to pay it. Bobby rushed home and, sure enough, found the letter left by one of the kidnappers near the front door. The ransom note was typed, single-spaced, all caps, on a single sheet of common notebook paper, folded in thirds, and tucked into the white envelope, addressed to family. It began, The ransom is $1 million. The entire amount will be in used, unmarked $20 bills. The money will be prepared in four separately wrapped packages of $250,000 each. The instructions left in this letter were so specific that it made it quite clear straight away that this was no spur-of-the-moment kidnapping. This had been carefully and methodically planned. Here is Swanson, the author, reading more of the letter. The money will be examined for obvious markings. Tests will be made for unusually high measures of radioactivity, and the money will be subjected to examination with infrared and ultraviolet light. If these or other detectable methods of marking are found on any portion of the money, it will not be considered acceptable. The money will be delivered tomorrow evening. The amount of money is established and will not be negotiated. The time of delivery has been established and will not be extended for any reason. Authorities quickly noticed that Ginny had been referred to only as the prisoner. The note included no names, which added with the kidnapper's apparent annoyance that Bobby wasn't home, they took to mean that they hadn't specifically targeted Bobby's wife. They just wanted someone from the Piper family. And it seemed their first choice had been Bobby. But the letter also made it clear that the men weren't just out looking for any old rich person to kidnap that day. It said, The person making the delivery must be closely associated with the company of Piper, Jaffrey, and Hopwood. Before delivery is accepted, this person will be examined for authenticity. Only the most intimate knowledge of PJ and H business will enable him to satisfy this examination. This was really interesting for a couple of reasons. First, it erased any doubt that the Pipers had been targeted because Bobby's company was mentioned. And second, it implied that the kidnappers would quiz the ransom deliverer about that company, which in turn meant that the kidnappers themselves must have known enough about the company to ask the questions for said quiz. And there was another thing too. Bobby had been leaving work early a lot of Thursdays. He had been ditching to go to the United Theological Seminary where he was working to get his master's degree in theology. Now, Bobby's bosses and Ginny knew where he was going and when, but someone who didn't know Bobby well, but was maybe paying attention to his comings and goings at work, might have assumed he was in the habit of cutting out early on Thursdays just to go home. Naturally, this led investigators to start looking at disgruntled workers, especially ones who'd had run-ins with Bobby specifically. They started right away, but... It turned out the case wasn't going to stay with the local police very long, not once the feds got wind of it. A 
As soon as the FBI heard of Ginny Piper's kidnapping, they swooped in. They didn't automatically have jurisdiction. In fact, the only way they would get jurisdiction would be if Ginny was taken across state lines. Still, the FBI had gone through a tumultuous several months. Remember, J. Edgar Hoover had beefed up the agency's reputation in the 30s and 40s, but by 1972, that reputation was pretty much in tatters. I mean, this was just, and J. Edgar Hoover had just died a couple months before the Piper kidnapping. And so the, and then of course, you heard of Watergate. The break-in was in June of 1972. About eight months before the Piper kidnapping, there was the D.B. Cooper hijacking or skyjacking of a Northwest Airlines flight. The Black Panthers were operating, the, the, the anti-war people, the, the kids were taking over college campuses. And the FBI themselves, one of their offices in Pennsylvania was burglarized one night by some anti-war activists who made off with tons of their own top secret documents. So the FBI was really under a lot of pressure. After Hoover's sudden death of heart failure in May 1972, the FBI was a mess. Which isn't really surprising when considering Hoover had been in charge for nearly 50 years. L. Patrick Gray III was immediately appointed as the acting director. He'd only been in the job two months when Ginny Piper went missing. A lot was riding on Gray. After all of the controversy the agency had recently weathered and then the upheaval of Hoover's sudden death, some people weren't sure the FBI would even survive. It didn't seem impossible that the whole thing would just die along with Hoover. Gray figured if the agency could nail the Piper case, it just might turn things around. The media immediately were insatiable, and they dug into Ginny and Bobby's backgrounds, camped out at the end of their long, winding driveway and breathlessly reported every development they learned. Roadblocks were put up, helicopters scoured the area, and the media was blocked from entering the grounds. But nothing. Mrs. Piper had disappeared along with her abductors. Swanson remembers this because, at the time of the kidnapping, he was one of those reporters. This was a huge deal. This was, this was the story that was on the evening news. It was on the front page of not only the, the Twin Cities papers, but papers all over the country. At the time, Swanson was a Minneapolis reporter with the United Press International, a wire service. A kidnapping of this sort near Lake Minnetonka, well, that kind of thing just didn't happen. So when this case broke, reporters didn't just file daily updates. Sometimes the updates were hourly. Bobby Piper wasn't a complete stranger to media attention. And just four months before Ginny's kidnapping, a story about him ran on the front page of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. The story began, quote, Contrary to rumors abounding in Omaha, Nebraska and other financial centers, Harry C. Piper Jr. does not intend to drop out of the world of high finance to become a minister, end quote. Reminder, Harry was Bobby's real name, but everyone who even knew him peripherally called him by his nickname. Anyway, you have to be pretty high profile for there to be rumors about you that weren't front page coverage on any newspaper anywhere, much less in one of the nation's largest cities. And Ginny had been in the papers plenty, too. In 1948, a fashion story in the Star Tribune described her wearing a pink and white candy-striped cotton ruffled skirt with a stole around her shoulders and a rhinestone choker. 
Her photo ran in 1959 while raising money for the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. She was featured again playing amateur women's golf in 1965. So yeah, they'd talked to reporters before, but I mean, this was all fluff compared to the types of questions they'd find themselves facing in 1972. Threats on your life or on your uh, family at any other time? No, none. Bobby was not a fan of this type of coverage, worried that he would somehow say something to piss off his wife's captors. He avoided reporters as much as he could especially when they ask for specifics. Absolutely no comment. We know there's a ransom I note, sir. There is no comment. Now, the Pipers were well off, but not so well off that they had a million bucks just lying around. And this was a huge sum of money. At the time, the most expensive ransom demand in FBI history. It translates to more than $6 million today. And still, Bobby decided, without even a second's pause, that he would figure out how to pay this money. He didn't have the money. But he knew people who did. Bobby Piper, meantime, and called his friend George Dixon, who was president of First National Bank of Minneapolis. And this is another aspect of these times. All of these people knew each other. The old boy network was in full swing. So it's hard for most of us, I imagine, to to realize that you could just pick up your phone and say, hey, George, I need a million bucks in cash, unmarked bills. And George said, okay, I'll put it together. Bobby Piper got a satchel containing a million dollars to deliver on Friday night. Kidnappings for ransom aren't all that common. They never have been. But the highest profile ones were cases we've actually talked about already in previous episodes. If you remember, the Barker Carpus gang kidnapped two men. First, William Hamm in 1933, and then Edward Bremer the following year. Those, of course, jumped to mind when Ginny was kidnapped because those were also in the Minneapolis area and had been huge news. Another case that came to Bobby's mind was that of Charlie Ross, the four-year-old Philadelphia boy whose disappearance in 1874 was the first kidnapping for ransom in American history. And we don't need to rehash those details, but what's important to remember is pretty simple. Charlie's family refused to pay the ransom, while Ham and Bremer's families paid theirs. Ham and Bremer were released to go home, and Charlie disappeared forever. Bobby wanted an outcome like Ham and Bremer, thank you very much. Meanwhile, inside of her captor's car, Ginny laid on the floor of the back seat area with that pillowcase still on her head and her wrist still cuffed. She tried to make mental note of when they were turning and what kind of terrain they were driving over, but she couldn't keep up. At one point, she asked if she could change positions. They, rather politely, said yes. Another time, they stopped driving and told Ginny to sit up and recite a plea they had written for her to her husband, which they recorded, and later used to relay instructions to Bobby. Hours passed. Ginny tried to catch bits of conversation passing between the two kidnappers, but they spoke very little, and she had a hard time hearing the little bit that they did say. She noticed one of them was a smoker, something that stood out to her because she was a smoker too and was hit by a pretty strong craving when she smelled it. Eventually, the car stopped and Ginny was ordered out. The men led her through what felt like a forest until they reached a clearing the pillowcase still over her head, Ginny could hear the men unfolding a plastic tarp or sheet and spreading it on the ground. 
They told her this is where they would wait. They took the pillowcase off her head, but instructed her not to look at them. And then they wrapped a chain through her handcuffs and around the trunk of a tree before padlocking it. This was unnerving, of course, but the men made a point to assure her several times she was going to be okay. They said, if your husband plays ball, you'll be released tomorrow morning and this will all be over. Ginny really was a well-liked person, and the big reason was because she was easy to talk to. I mean, she wore high-end conservative clothes and kept her hair and nails done perfectly, but she really was unpretentious. She was the type who could talk to a CEO of a company in one breath, then turn around and have a drink trading stories with her cleaning lady the next. After she was seated in the clearing, she heard one of the men leave, but realized that the second one had stayed. Instinctively, she started to talk to him, not demanding her freedom or anything, but just talking in a casual, respectful, unassuming way. That's how she came to learn he was nicknamed Alabama, even though he had never lived in that state, and he worked construction. He sounded gruff and probably not very educated, but he was also surprisingly polite. He actually said at one point that he wasn't supposed to stay with her, and the plan was to leave her there alone overnight, but he didn't want anything to happen to her, what with her being a petite woman, alone in the woods, chained to a tree. Ginny only caught a peripheral, fleeting look at this man who stayed with her, which only let her see that he was white, he had dark hair streaked with gray, and his left eye had a strange imperfection in it that made it look haloed. The man wasn't particularly chatty, but he talked some, and it calmed Ginny, at least a little. She didn't get the sense that he would hurt her, and that actually made it tough when morning came, and Alabama just left. He had gotten up and walked away for stints before, but this time he had walked away and didn't come back. When it was clear he'd left her for good, she felt panicked for the first time, and she hadn't eaten since being kidnapped, aside from some soggy bread and cheese Alabama had scrounged up for her. She hadn't slept either, so she was hungry and dehydrated and starting to feel disoriented. So disoriented, in fact, that she heard her mother talking to her, which was weird because her mom was dead. In this sort of daze, she began to convince herself that she had been abandoned, that no one was coming to get her, that by the time she was found, she'd be long dead. She pictured hikers tromping through the woods and stumbling upon her decomposing body. Or even worse, maybe she wouldn't be found for months or even years. Maybe someday someone would happen to find a pile of bones next to some rusty handcuffs and chain. Ginny decided she wasn't going to face that fate without a fight, so she began to dig. The tree she was chained to wasn't terribly big, so having a green thumb, she figured the root system was probably pretty shallow. If she could just dig deep enough to uproot the tree, she could either slip the chain off the trunk and run for freedom, or maybe even drag the damn thing behind her if she had to. There weren't any stones or sticks for her to dig with, so she got on her knees and began clawing at the earth. What she didn't know is that more than a hundred miles away, Bobby was enduring his own nightmare.
The ransom letter left at the Piper's home when Ginny was taken had promised that a call would come that night with instructions on where to bring the million dollars demanded for Ginny's safe return. The instructions were very clear. No cops or FBI agents were allowed to accompany the person dropping off the money. Ginny's life was at stake. The FBI agents seemed to think Ginny was likely a goner either way, though they never said as much out loud. What they did emphasize was their desire to make an arrest far more than their desire to secure Ginny's return. And they tried to insist they tag along for the money drop. But Bobby said absolutely not. He was firm. We are not doing anything that might endanger my wife, he said. The agents relented. Bobby let them put a tracking device in his car, though that turned out to be useless because one of the drop-off instructions was to drive a car to a certain parking lot, find a different car left there by the kidnappers, transfer the ransom from the original car to the new car's trunk, and then leave that first car behind altogether. By the way, that second car was the same Monte Carlo that Ginny had been kidnapped in initially, the description of which had been on blast nationwide. These were brazen guys. The ransom call didn't come Thursday as promised, leaving the Pipers to endure an agonizing night. But it did come Friday, and Bobby was determined to follow the instructions to the letter, starting by refusing to let anyone else make the drop. First off, if he sent an undercover cop or agent, they might be quizzed on Bobby's company. The letter had warned of that, after all. And if they failed the quiz, Ginny could die. Second, Bobby wasn't the type to delegate to one of his staffers. I mean, this was serious life-and-death stuff. He wasn't sure whoever went to drop off the money would come back alive. He wasn't willing to ask that of anyone else. The Piper's three sons, Tad, David, and Harry C. Piper III, said heartbreaking goodbyes to their father. And their mother was already gone, fate unknown. And now they were sending their father off to God knows where. They had no idea if they'd ever see either parent alive again. Bobby Piper set out immediately on a very harrowing ride, not knowing where he was going, simply following a series of posted instructions that he would find along the way as kind of almost like a reverse scavenger hunt. The instructions were, as we've learned with other kidnapping tales, annoyingly complicated and confusingly specific. The person making the delivery will carry a minimum of $200 on his person. He will carry an assortment of change in his pocket, including at least five dimes. As I'd mentioned, Bobby was told to ditch his car and pick up a different one in some random parking lot. And then he had to stop at a specific telephone pole to find a note left at its base. Then he had to drive to a bar, go inside, make a phone call, hence the instructions to carry dimes, let the call ring five times, then hang up, go into a restroom, and read yet another note left for him. If that's all confusing, I'm sure that was the point. It'd be tough for somebody tailing Bobby to keep up with all these weird twists and turns and red herrings tossed his way during this trip. Somehow, Bobby, for the most part, was unflappable. And on Friday... After he'd secured the money and the FBI installed that useless tracker in his car, he set out on this sort of life-or-death scavenger hunt and did everything the kidnappers instructed. He swapped his car, he found the notes, and eventually... He ended up 
in the parking lot of a bar near downtown Minneapolis. It's now under I-94. And uh, that's where the, the money was apparently uh, and likely removed from the trunk of the car he was driving uh, by the kidnappers while he was inside the bar following their instructions and making some bogus phone calls. While Bobby was inside a bar whose patrons had no idea what was happening or who this guy tying up the public phone was, someone opened the trunk of the Monte Carlo he'd driven there, snatched a 110-pound canvas bag full of unmarked $20 bills, and left. The FBI had no idea where the drop-off even was until at least an hour after the money had been taken. By then, the kidnappers were long gone. But what about Ginny? None of the notes left on Bobby's scavenger hunt made any reference at all to where his wife was. Ginny Piper is standing in the rain and uh, the cold, hungry, terrified, needless to say, in Jay Cook State Park. And so she's standing there Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, not knowing what her fate is going to be. Saturday morning, as Everybody is out looking for Ginny Piper by this time. The money has been delivered. Ginny had spent the night alternating between digging and sleeping, sleeping and digging. She dug until her nails broke and her wrists felt raw from rubbing against the handcuffs. When exhaustion would hit, she'd nod off in a useless, unrecuperative sleep, then regroup and start digging again. At some point, she noticed the sun was rising again. What she didn't know is that 150 miles away, a telephone was ringing. Saturday morning, a clergyman in Minneapolis gets a call. An anonymous caller who has instructions that he's supposed to pass on to the FBI as to the location of Ginny Piper. Ginny had no idea where she was, but the FBI finally did. Jay Cook State Park is north of Minneapolis near Lake Superior, just about five miles from the state's border with Wisconsin. The park's a two and a half-ish hour drive from Minneapolis, depending on the route you take. And the route matters because if the kidnappers drove her north on I-35, they would have taken the shortest route, which would have kept them in Minnesota. If they took a more backwoodsy way by traveling up Highway 23, they would have slipped into Wisconsin for literally half a mile. And that half mile would mean that the FBI had jurisdiction. And that mattered because the statute of limitations on kidnapping in Minnesota was three years, while the federal statute of limitations was five years. Three hours after the FBI got the relayed message about Ginny's whereabouts, they stepped out of their car and slammed the door, ready to hike through some woods. Ginny heard the thud of the door slamming shut. As she told it the next day at a news conference. So I yelled, help, and it was the FBI. And five of them came running through the underbrush. And I've never been so glad to see people as I was to see them. The agents had no idea what shape she was in. I mean, when the whole ordeal started, they'd prepared for the worst. And there's Ginny Piper, filthy, soaking wet, hungry, dying for a cigarette, chained to this tree, physically unharmed, other than the bruises that the handcuffs caused on her wrists. But remarkably, 
She had not been sexually molested. She had not been pushed around. She had not really even been threatened. Of course, she was traumatized. She would never be the same. And she couldn't bear to stay home alone overnight. The family installed a security system and armed Ginny with a panic button she could take wherever she went. She survived, but the carefree, trusting life that she and her family had once led was over for good. Ginny Piper told reporters after her nightmare ordeal that she would feel safer once the kidnappers were caught. But one year passed with no arrests, and then another. The FBI had been instructed not to mark the ransom money, but they had recorded the serial numbers from each bill and distributed that list to banks nationwide. A few bills were swapped out several months after the kidnapping, but the tellers never knew what was happening until after the fact, so they never had been paying enough attention to get a truly good look at the person exchanging the tainted money. Three years passed with no arrests, and that meant whoever kidnapped Ginny could no longer be charged in Minnesota because the statute of limitations had run out. The feds had latched onto the theory that the captors had driven the Highway 23 route, so they kept looking. And lo and behold, in the 11th hour, just 16 days before the five-year mark, they made two arrests. One was a man named Donald Larson, who was already in prison. He'd been a petty thief up until about a year prior, so we're talking about four years after Ginny's kidnapping, which is when he shot and killed his wife, her lover, and two of his own children. The Fed's theory was that it wasn't just an adultery-fueled crime of passion, as Larson insisted, but rather an attempt to keep his family quiet about what they knew. The second suspect was named Kenneth Callahan, another guy who had petty crimes in his past, though this one never upgraded to murder. Both of the men denied any involvement, and one had a pretty decent alibi. The only physical evidence was a smudged partial fingerprint that a prosecuting expert said matched Callahan's, though an equally qualified defense expert said, no, it doesn't. Neither man had that bizarre eye imperfection, that sort of halo that Ginny had seen when she briefly caught a look at the guy who stayed with her, the one who'd said his nickname was Alabama. Investigators determined the eye imperfection was Arcus senilis, a depositing of phospholipid and cholesterol in the peripheral cornea. It causes a sort of hazy white or gray ring to circle the colored part of the eye. It's not uncommon in people older than 60, though it can happen in younger people too. But when it does happen, it's permanent. It doesn't come and go. And neither Larson nor Callahan had the condition. On top of all that, it wasn't really clear if the FBI even truly had jurisdiction that was completely dependent on what roads the kidnappers had taken. I mean, it's not like Jenny, who had a pillowcase over her head the entire ride, could confirm the route they took. This is Randall Teague, a sometimes Minnesota lawyer giving a speech in 2019 at a Free Thought Toastmasters club about the Highway 23 theory. He said he can buy that the kidnappers would have taken that route. First of all, you figure that you got somebody bound, gagged, and blindfolded in the back seat of your car. You certainly aren't going to take the freeway. You're going to take the back roads like Highway 23. 
Teague knows the area well because his grandparents lived in Duluth, which was near Jay Cook State Park. It's a three-hour drive, and nature's going to call. And if you've got somebody bound, gagged, and blindfolded in the back seat of your car, you're not going to pull into a rest stop or a gas station to use the public facilities. You're going to go off the road, into the woods. The jury agreed it seemed likely, which meant that the case did qualify as a federal matter, so the statute of limitations hadn't lapsed. The jury also decided that a partially smudged fingerprint was all the evidence they needed. After a month-long trial in 1977, Callahan and Larson were found guilty. The men immediately filed an appeal and actually won a new trial when an appellate court decided that the defense should have been allowed to call a witness that the original judge had ruled against. Their retrial came in 1979, and that time, they were acquitted. The second jury reached a different conclusion than the first for two reasons. First, they didn't think the FBI could prove it even had jurisdiction. And second, new witnesses pointed to other possible kidnappers. Specifically, a woman named Linda Burton Billstrom, herself convicted of armed robbery, said her husband, Robert Billstrom, had talked openly in front of her with a crew of other men about how they had kidnapped Jenny. She said she and her husband camped a night in Jay Cook State Park a couple of weeks before the kidnapping. And on July 27th, the day Ginny disappeared, she was checked into a nearby motel to give Bob an alibi. She said she didn't see him until July 29th, which was the day that Ginny was found. Also, Bob had a friend in the construction business who happened to be nicknamed Alabama. That all sounds pretty damning, and it was enough to help with that whole probable cause thing for Callahan and Larson, but nothing ever came of it. Maybe it would have had Robert Billstrom still been alive, but in October 1972, three months after the kidnapping, he and his crew had been robbing a supper club when police arrived and the two sides got in a shootout. Billstrom was shot five times and left comatose. He died from his injuries in March 1973. Nothing about this case helped the agency's reputation. Not only did it take five long years to charge anyone, but in the end, the case failed. Not only that, but a lot of people were convinced the FBI had charged the wrong guys. Now, the FBI agents who worked the case never entertained the notion that anyone other than Callahan and Larson were the kidnappers. They insisted that the second jury got it wrong. At least in public, officials to this day have been adamant that they charged the right guys. And Bobby and Ginny believe that too. You'd be amazed how many victims and witnesses absolutely trust the theories put forth by prosecutors. Hard evidence and jurors' verdicts be damned. In 1988, Ginny died at age 65 of cancer, still believing that Larson and Callahan were guilty. Bobby died two years later, believing the same. The Piper children are less convinced. Harry C. Piper III made headlines in the late 90s and early 2000s when he sued the FBI to get 80,000 pages of case file. It was a years-long ordeal, costing Piper some $80,000, but he eventually won. Still haunted by the case in his middle age, he did some first-hand research and tracked down both Callahan and Larson so he could talk to them himself. 
After meeting with both men decades after the ordeal, he said he just couldn't believe they were the types to pull off a million-dollar heist. And these guys were too small-scale. Whoever kidnapped Jenny Piper had been smart, methodical, and successful. They'd gotten away with a million dollars, only $4,000 of which has ever been recovered, by the way. And they did it all without physically hurting anyone. Which is why, to this day, the kidnapping of Ginny Piper is considered one of the most successful crimes in American history. To research this story, I obviously read William Swanson's Stolen from the Garden, which had been recommended to me by my old friend and one-time co-author David Batcher, who was all, you gotta do this case. And so I did. I read a bunch of news stories, too, and Google Earth the hell out of Minnesota. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs>